This podcast is recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and the Aranda people. We pay our deepest respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. We all misbehave sometimes. Want to change the world, indulge in some bad Hello and welcome to Bad Behaviour. It's our new season. I'm Rosalyn. I'm Nicola and welcome. Oh my goodness. I am happy to be back. I'm so happy to be back with you as well. We had such an amazing year last year and I'm so thankful for everyone who came on that journey. It was such a massive year. It kind of, it went by so, so quickly. I feel like we really hit our stride in terms of the type of episodes that we were releasing. We're award winners. Yes, we won an award. Isn't that crazy? (laughs) Yeah, we won Best Arts and Culture Podcast at the Australian Podcast Awards. And honestly, we were not expecting it. We were so excited to be nominated. We told everyone that we were award nominees. And then on the night, we just said, we'll just watch it. We'll have a good time. We'll drink some wine. And then they called our name and we were genuinely, genuinely shocked. So thank you so much to all of the organisers, everyone else, but also to you guys for listening and inspiring us to continue making this show. Oh, absolutely. We really love doing this show a lot and it's but having a little sprinkle of external validation is always really nice. So how have you been, Rosalind? What's been going on? I've been good. I've been getting ready to move, which has been really fun, but so much work and you forget how much crap you have in your life. And yeah, I've been back with the band. We actually just recorded a song. We had an amazing opportunity through the American Express Music Backers Studio Week (laughs) to go into a really, really cool studio called Sing Sing and um, yeah, and to record a new song. That's so exciting. I'm so excited to release it. I'm so excited to be back with the band. I'm so excited to just be able to be in a studio space again. Obviously, Corona shut down everything over last year. So, yeah, it's been really cool. And I've been doing a lot of exploration and experimentation with my songwriting. And, yeah, it's been fun. How about you, Nikki? I have been great. I have moved. So I moved states, which was fun. It was a bit of a plot twist. I didn't expect that to happen last year. So I'm always down for a bit of spontaneous change. So I'm in a new environment now. I moved from Victoria to the Northern Territory and I'm living in Alice Springs on the land of the Arunda people now. So that's been super interesting and I cannot believe that I'm here. (laughs) I can't believe you're there either. All by myself. I know. We went from being like five minutes drive from each other to being, what did you say? It was a 24-hour drive. It's a 24-hour drive. So sayonara, bitch. Thanks. (laughs) Yeah. you You could say that the codependency has been put to the test. Yeah. I still talk to you like every day. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's it's really good. I got a new job that was such a welcome change for me. I was in a bit of a... A rut. A slump, bit of a... A valley. A valley. A, a trough. trough. Exactly. Yeah. 
same wavelength. So to have this new opportunity to learn new things, I'm learning so much. It's all so on the go. The people here are so incredible. Every week, Roz hears my new observations about life in Alice Springs and all the people who live here are just so amazing like they all are so interesting they all have so many hobbies like people do you know netball and horse riding and mountain biking and theater classes and it's so lovely to see all these adults with all these different hobbies I'm excited to hear about your new hobbies I know I have to pick my lane what am I gonna choose I think um maybe not horse riding excuse you no, but that's – no, I know you've got horse girl energy, but I just feel like that's a hard one to keep on when you move away if you end up moving from Alice Springs later. Why did I get insulted when you said horse girl energy? Like, I feel like horse girl energy is the worst <laughs> energy to have. That is not true. It's so They're it's so, so annoying. No. Oh, I was a big fan of the Saddle Club when so I was younger. So was I. I was a that horse girl. That was all I wanted. I was disgusted with my, like, looking back, I do not vibe with horse girls. They're so intent. If you're a horse girl listening to this, I would like to distance myself from Nicola's stance on horse girl energy. (laughs) I embrace this energy. It's a bit intense of you to attach that to me. Like, I don't know at what point in my adult life I've given off horse girl energy. And for that matter... You you got insulted when I said that you shouldn't do horse riding. And now you're insulted that I said you had horse girl energy. Pick a side. It's a time of change for me. I'm deciding who I am, okay? Well, I don't think that you're a horse rider. I just think you have the potential to be. Okay, cool. Yeah, I'm sorry for picking a fight with you about that. I just, um, (laughs) it really hit hard because I can ride a horse (laughs) and I don't want anyone thinking that I can't. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Um, On that note, (laughs) we're so excited to share our next season with you. I hope you had a wonderful holiday season and an amazing new year and that you're ready for some really, really cool guests and new content. Last season, I think it was in the episode on Life After a Cult, maybe, that we spoke about gender identity and gender expression and how I had been going through a whole thing with, you know, wearing androgynous clothes and not really knowing what to wear when I didn't feel super feminine and... Actually, I've been having a whole crisis. I don't want to say crisis because it's actually been really nice. I feel like my crises when I was a teenager felt like the be all and end all of everything. And my crises now are kind of a slow self-discovery, which is really lovely. But kudos to TikTok for (laughs) showing me lots of videos about really cool non-binary people and concepts and ideas and the representation on queer TikTok is amazing and it just sort of has led me down this really interesting path and so this week we are talking to incredible person called Jamie LeClaire. Jamie LeClaire is a queer non-binary sex educator, pleasure coach, writer and consultant based in the US. Their work explores the intersections of sexual health and wellness, relationships and dating, queer and trans identity and body politics. You can find them on Twitter and Instagram at Jamie J. LeClaire.
My name is Jamie LeClaire. I'm a sex educator. I'm an intimacy coach. I'm also a writer and erotic laborer slash performer, but mostly right now I'm focusing on performing and then education. And I do a lot of that via like one-on-one sessions and then a lot of it via social media and primarily my Instagram. What was your journey growing up in terms of understanding and exploring your gender identity? So for me, I really didn't kind of go on this like gender journey or like what I would call it, like a conscious gender journey until about mm, four or three, four years ago. But I know growing up when I grew up, I knew what transgender was, but non-binary, like it wasn't a thing. It's always been a thing. Non-binary people have always existed, but it wasn't like a popular subject. Like people weren't talking about it. People were talking about like transgender issues and things like that occasionally. That was the only thing that I saw. So the only thing that I saw when it came to gender or a change of gender was a swap from one binary gender to the other binary gender. And that never like connected with me. So I never really thought the gender journey would be something that I would go through, even though for like most of my growing up, most of my life, I was what you would call a tomboy. And I definitely liked things that were typically more quote boyish growing up. And, but I, again, I didn't really have any language around that. And not a lot of people did have language around that, um, around what non-binary is. And then when I started to hear those words and I started to start seeing people in the mainstream society, and then also like people that I would follow um, in the Instagram communities that I followed, that really helped. And then I think there was like a distinct moment. I, I remember I was just driving down my street leaving my house and just randomly the thought came into my, I was like, could I be trans? And then I was like, no, but cause you don't want to be a man. But I was sitting there. I was like, but something still doesn't quite feel right. And I just kind of clocked that moment in my head. And I was like, this is going to be an insignificant moment. That was a funny, weird thought. It's probably nothing. But then I think back to yeah, the moments when I kind of like was searching for an answer, but still couldn't find that answer. Like, what what am I looking for? What is my identity? Um, still at that moment, couldn't quite put my finger on it. It did take me. I knew what like non-binary was by the time I'd moved to Philly, which was about three or four years ago. But it was moving to Philly that actually allowed me the strength, I think, to come out as non-binary because of the incredible queer community that exists in Philadelphia. Um, and I came from Los Angeles. So that says a lot. That's really interesting that it's becoming more and more spoken about. You know, I think it's, I've definitely seen that trend. It's why it's so important. Like seeing those people is so important. And like, that's what it was for me, like seeing representation. That's why like we need more representation more than ever, because like seeing those people. And then when I moved to Philly, it was seeing so many other non-binary, like clearly non-binary and like androgynous looking people just like out and proud living here gave me the strength to come out. So absolutely, like being able to see it is is really key for people. I'm hoping that most of our listeners have come across some of these terms before, but you never know. So could you say what non-binary and agender means? I would say that they kind of mean something 
different depending on like the person who is non-binary, but like a general definition of like non-binary would just be a classification of gender that doesn't fall under the two common genders of binary man or binary woman. Non-binary is basically an umbrella term. And then under that are like additional identifiers. And you mentioned like what my identifier is, which is agender. That's one of them. Other words that people could use are like gender fluid, gender queer, uh, bi-gender. Some people just choose to say like gender free or no gender. Agender kind of means that to me. So I use agender. But again, people have so many different words to describe themselves. And I think that's a wonderful and beautiful thing. Absolutely. Well, it's such a personal thing as well. You can choose what you identify as and it's great to have a term that feels comfortable. It makes sense that there are heaps of them. It can get overwhelming too, though, because if you are just starting to explore your gender and searching and you're Googling and there's all these terms coming, it can be overwhelming. I can definitely understand that. And then there is something to be said about not putting so much weight on labels, uh, because while labels are incredibly important and they can provide us so much as far as the way that we feel and then also like in getting approval from society, getting like funding, it, it can be important for things like that. But it's also important to say that like, these labels and things, things aren't like gender and sexuality doesn't have to be set in stone. We grow and change as humans. So uh, it's important to say that your labels can grow and change along with you. Something that we might touch on is gender dysphoria. And I just wanted to quickly ask you to tell me what that means as well before we jump in. You don't necessarily need to have dysphoria to to be a trans or non-binary person. You absolutely don't need to have gender dysphoria to be a trans or non-binary person. Because I think a good way for me to describe it is I don't often have gender dysphoria. When I have gender dysphoria, it is because of other people and their gendering of me. So when I am home and I'm alone with my body, it doesn't make me uncomfortable. For a person with dysphoria, being alone with their body without the judgments of other people even would still make them uncomfortable. I think that's a good way to describe it. So my gender is still non-binary, but my body, I'm comfortable with my body. It has nothing actually to do with my body. It's more in the way that I feel. I haven't heard it put that way before. I think that makes it really clear for me in my head. You know, it's more about yourself than other people, right? I think a, a point that you made earlier that is so important to remember is, you know, the idea that non-binary and trans people have always been here just because the conversation is m more spoken about and cisgender people are more aware of it doesn't mean it's new. We just need to get on board and get over it. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Yeah. I think not a lot of people realize that. I mean, it would be incredible if this could be something that everyone gets taught, but that will probably not likely happen in the next 50 years. But absolutely. I mean, non-binary genders have existed in countries across every continent. It's true. There are cultures right across the world and throughout history that have recognized or even celebrated non-binary people. For example, two-spirit people in Native American cultures, just to name one of them. And yet I only really came across non-binary recently. I knew about it, I had friends who talked about it, and yet I didn't really understand it until recently when I got on TikTok, <laughs> strangely enough. And I'm on queer TikTok well and truly, and it's been such an amazing experience to see so many different people represented and celebrated on that platform where you can make your own content and say whatever you like, and you can follow people and, 
and I started seeing a lot of non-binary people. And you know those TikToks where they point to different things on screen or they start saying, this is the For You page and list a few things for you? Yeah, it got a little bit uncomfortable for a while because there were quite a lot of non-binary TikToks that made a lot of sense to me. And I hadn't realized why until we started really talking about some of these ideas last season. So I've had a bit of a journey and I'm definitely still on it. I don't think I'm ready to sort of say I'm a non-binary person and I'm still just flirting with the idea of pronouns, but suddenly I have an explanation for why some days I'm so uncomfortable with my body and my gender and why some days I wish I didn't have boobs and that I could just be somewhere in the middle and some days I wish I could present slightly more masculine because I just feel so awkward and strange like a I don't even know how to describe it maybe like a marionette puppet (laughs) that strings are being sort of lifted around and you're going oh yeah it's a strange feeling and it's really exciting to talk to someone like Jamie who has this wealth of experience and understanding of these concepts to go over it And I just wanted to take a moment to welcome any non-binary people listening, but also specifically welcome people who are on that journey or still discovering themselves and still exploring this topic, because I am too. And it's really important that you take a moment to go, if you're having any of these thoughts or any of this stuff is coming up for you, take a moment to recognize that. Don't stress about figuring it all out in a day. As we've said many times, the journey goes at your own pace. But welcome to this community. You are so very embraced and loved, and I hope that you enjoy your journey and embrace your journey and that you're safe in your journey. So reach out if you'd like badbehaviorpodcast at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your stories and your thoughts. And uh, this has been a really exciting episode for me. Did you know that the average person uses over 11,000 menstrual disposable products in their lifetime? And it's estimated that over 100 billion menstrual disposables end up in landfill annually. That's why we are so excited to collaborate with Modibody, the new way to period. I personally love Modibody products and I'm so excited to work with them. Modibody products help me feel my best when I'm on my period and I highly recommend them to anyone looking to explore a more sustainable and comfortable way to have your period. They are also committed to creating a positive impact as a brand. This includes helping to end period poverty and supporting health education programs that normalise and open up conversations around our bodies, which is something we're also trying to do here on Bad Behaviour. Check out modibody.com for more details. Modibody is the new way to period. So I'd love to get a story from you about your experience exploring sex and pleasure while navigating gender. I think I'm kind of still on that journey because I only come out like as non-binary about like three and a half years ago. And it's been only like a couple of years 
but so much of that time I haven't really been able to focus on sex, even though I was literally learning about sex that whole time and educating other people about sex. I didn't actually give me a lot of time to kind of connect with my own sexuality. And so I think I'm still kind of on that journey and especially uh, navigating that as a sex worker, as a performer has been a challenge because there is a box that people want to put you in and that doesn't feel great. And then the misgendering in that community is persistent. It is every day. So navigating sexuality hasn't been the easiest for me, I'll be perfectly honest. But I think what has been super helpful is having a community of people who are going through a very similar thing and who can affirm me and we can affirm each other and we can kind of talk about it. And then someone who I can come back to and is always going to see me for the gender that I am and the gender that I identify with. And I feel like that's always going to be there for me, thankfully. And so that has been incredibly helpful as far as like navigating sexuality and then also reaching out and finding queer porn and people with bodies that look like yours is so incredibly helpful just because I feel like so often like you can't even imagine what like sex would look like for you if maybe you're going through a gender journey or maybe you're getting gender affirming surgery just your presentation is just not the same as it used to be and you don't see people the way that you look in mainstream porn but it's really not if you know where to look it's not that hard to find other porn and other erotic labor that is out there that it does feature queer people queer bodies larger bodies disabled bodies all different sorts of bodies and that was so 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 very helpful i was like oh my gosh this is hot like holy heck this is hot so other people could find me hot the way that i look now not even in like a fetish way which can be what a lot of the times like what you see if you do search up like trans and then like you're in Pornhub or something versus like a queer porn production company such as like I can give you a couple there's four chambers there is crash pad pink label and queerporn.tv and there's aorta films they feature like all different sorts of queer people and bodies and races which is so so important I think that's a really interesting point because I think, you know, often when I talk about porn to people, it's in a kind of, isn't it terrible that porn fetishizes people and it presents this unrealistic kind of view of sex and the degradation of women and all of this stuff that you have to talk about with porn. But it's true if you go looking for positive, queer, positive, queer made sex. Yeah, absolutely. And then with OnlyFans, like, I mean, hey, <laughs> I'm a literal like non-binary performer and so many of my subscribers are non-binary and queer and trans people and they message me and they tell me they're like it's so empowering and lovely to be able to subscribe and to a non-binary person. I don't know a lot about OnlyFans to be honest. A couple months ago I kind of started getting into it because I think I had said like I mentioned doing like sex education and like learning about sex and doing so much work around sex and but in an academic way really disconnected me from like my actual sexuality. And so much of it was just like the only time I was thinking about like sex was if it had to do with like posting on stuff on Instagram, coming up with content, writing. And so at the end of the day, I was just exhausted. And like, I didn't really, if I was going to do something sexual, it's like, I'm just going to go, you know, 
pull my pants down and masturbate real quick and fall asleep. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, this is not who I am. I was like, this is not, I mean, yeah, you go through lulls in your life. But like, for me, I just like, wasn't comfortable with like my sexuality just being diminished so much while working in a sexuality industry. And so I was like, maybe I would have a little bit of fun creating content and it absolutely has like done what I was like hoping for. I feel far more connected to myself sexually. I think the positives for starting my OnlyFans have like outweighed the negatives as far as like connecting to my own sexuality and then I feel like also kind of connecting to my gender and mostly because of like I've been able to connect to this like incredible queer and trans sex work community which is just gosh so beautiful and eye-opening. So I found it really intriguing when Jamie was talking about porn as an empowering concept. And I think it's because outside of, you know, sex work and people going and doing their own thing and taking control of their own sex work online or whatever that looks like, such as OnlyFans, which Jamie does, I think I'm still stuck in that mindset of porn as this sort of mainstream degrading thing for women it doesn't represent people accurately or realistically it can be really damaging for what people expect about sex it sets up those unrealistic expectations you know I have all of these different things that I think make me kind of really hesitant about the idea of porn especially ideas about different entrenched problems within you know stereotypes and how it's run and the idea that some people might be exploited or be in porn because they're in a bad situation they want the money or whatever it is I've got so many and I think that's a lot of bias on my part but I think there's also a lot to be said for those things but what Jamie was saying was really interesting because I think I've also had those thoughts where it goes okay if you can see someone that looks like you if you go to amateur porn or if you go to someone who's making ethical porn and they're representing different bodies and races and gender expressions you know oh my god that person looks like me and they're having fun and they're doing this in a way that they're not ashamed of what they're doing and that can be really empowering too so it was kind of an interesting revelation for me to switch to that way of thinking consciously. I think that it's such an interesting concept to think about, particularly in feminism as well, like white feminism. Sex work has been really marginalised and there's a lot of stigma against it as well. And I know that I've had a lot of conversation with people who've identified, white women who've identified as, as feminists openly, who have a really hard time getting behind sex workers. And that seems really dangerous, you know, to have those ideas in your head. You want women to be empowered and to have autonomy over their body, but not in a way where they're able to make money from it. And I think, like, for me, always it's been such a topic of interest. Like, I love and respect so many sex workers and um, I love learning about all the movements that go on and the wonderful communities that happen 
within that world. But you're right as well. Like it's also historically places like if you go on Pornhub, there is huge problems with some of the content on there and it's got underage girls, it's got women and girls and theys and thems who've potentially been like sex trafficked. Like you just don't know the history of what you're watching and you can't ensure that it's ethical. So it, for me, that takes away the pleasure of watching porn. If I'm not assured a woman's safety or, or someone's safety in this context, it like really does not sit well with me. So I think a huge part of my process has been learning where to find ethical porn. I think that's been key. And then also the rise of OnlyFans. Like OnlyFans is so cool and I don't know a lot about it. So please, if there's problems or ethics issues that our listeners know of, like I would love to hear about them. But I do really like the idea of supporting individuals. Well, it takes out that middle murkiness where you're not sure who is producing and making this and who it's for and it gets a little bit muddy on on places like Pornhub and so yeah the idea of someone taking control of their own sexuality and what they want to do and have complete control over their platform they're not told who to have sex with how or, or anything like that unless they decide to yeah it's really interesting to think of it that way that idea of ethical porn is really interesting to me because I don't entirely know how to research and confirm that a place that makes porn is ethical and how to find that and consume and how to even start that process almost. It is really confusing. It makes me think as well listening to Jamie and hearing how they porn was a way and OnlyFans was a way to discover and explore their gender identity. That is a really cool concept to me because I think porn in general, it's predominantly male gaze. So you get these stories and these characters and this type of pleasure that's really saturated in heteronormative ideas and the patriarchy. And it can be, yeah, it can be once you've kind of stepped back a bit from that and like had the chance to unlearn it, it can be really difficult to watch. And it also then makes sense why some men and boys, straight men and boys, act the way that they do, if that's what they're consuming. So I think that's a whole other layer of it. As a consumer, you want to ensure, number one, that the place that you're seeking porn from is ethical, and then also that there's diversity. When I consider porn and, and its place in my life, one of the first things I think of is the male gaze, I think, and how for someone like Jamie, such a, a key and beautiful part of their journey is that they were able to seek out porn where they saw androgynous people and they saw androgynous people have seeking pleasure and in really loving situations and I think that's so empowering and it's kind of been the same for me to be able to find ethical porn has come from the fact that you know I want to see myself represented in the porn that I'm watching like I want it to be diverse I want it to be um, inclusive and I also really want it to be safe. I want to know that the people who are appearing in that porn are 
compensated properly for it. I have just recently, I've started um, supporting a couple of OnlyFans accounts and I love it. Like it's so fun. And it's one of the first times too, that it's kind of been a bit shame free for me. You know, it makes me feel good that I'm getting to support these creators to do what they love to do. And then also it like works for my own pleasure as well, because I'm getting content that's really specific and neat and that I've chosen. I think that's so exciting because I definitely don't think I'm at that point. I'm still at a place where I find it really difficult to even admit to watching porn at all. I don't really do it often and I wonder sometimes if that's because I have an internal thing going on about that. But I think also it is that consent thing where I'm not always sure if the people in it are happy about it and it worries me. (laughs) So there's been a few where it's like they'll have a debrief at the end and they go, I had such a good time. And then I go, wow, great. And I can go back and watch it again without any hesitation. I think that's really funny. Um, Another thing is, of course, that when we talk about representation, we're talking about representation without fetishizing that representation. Like it's like we want representation where people are having sex and experiencing pleasure in a way that is not hyper-focused on that representation and over-fetishizing and making it creepy. (laughs) But I also think as well, like, porn is a place for if you do have a fetish or a kink, you can access content related to that in a way that, again, is ethical, there's boundaries, all that type of stuff. Like, that part of it, I still haven't even wrapped my head around you know when you say that like porn is still a bit icky for you and like you're not at that place where you can like loudly proclaim it as part of your pleasure like I feel that so deeply as well we should be paying for this like a platform like Pornhub should not exist I mean yeah the audacity of me because I've never paid for (laughs) I've never paid for porn ever so yeah no that's a really good point actually I have no clue how it works. All I know is that it's too much free stuff. I do not think that it's all above board with how accessible it is. And like, there should be a moment where you stop and think, okay, cool, I should not be getting this for free. So I'm going to figure out a way to pay for it. I feel like we could talk about this for years and years. Like, it's so interesting. Yeah, we should do an episode just on porn. I think there's just so many things to uncover around this topic, you know, the different layers, what is ethical porn, how can we find it? I think that would be really interesting. For this episode in particular, on our website, we'll put up a list of some ethical places that you can sign up to. You touched on it a bit before, but, you know, the world and our education system is so heteronormative. And I wonder what kind of assumptions do you come across, especially with the OnlyFans, but just in general, with people around sex with trans or non-binary people? So I would say in general, people automatically are going to make assumptions that being trans or non-binary means that you've had some kind of surgery or that you're on some sort of gender affirming treatment, which is not always the case. Uh, There's been times when I wanted to go on testosterone. I'm at a point where I don't know if I want to do that right now. I may, who knows, uh, down the road. But again, that doesn't necessarily qualify for being like trans or non-binary. And then also looking any different, you could literally 
be identifying cis and then the next day be like oh i'm actually non-binary and you're non-binary like you don't look any different but you're non-binary so the way that you look doesn't have to change one bit and that is probably one of the bigger assumptions is that they ask what's down there pretty much uh that's like a question that trans and non-binary people get asked all the time which is highly inappropriate i don't know about assumptions i get a lot of fetishization and i think any i all trans like a non-binary people i feel like get that trans men trans women non-binary we all get fetishized but as a non-binary person i mostly get fetishized for like my androgyny but I like my androgyny, but there's something about it when the way that these people are interacting with the way that I look and my androgyny and the things that they're saying, that it's clearly, oh, that's the only thing pulling them. If I didn't have that, they like probably wouldn't have been interested. Absolutely. It's one part of a whole identity rather than <laughs> the only thing you need to know. Exactly. And it's just like the way that I look, so it doesn't feel great. No, that sounds awful. Going through this journey where you were figuring out, you know, that you were a non-binary person, did you have assumptions yourself that you had to get over or work through? I mean, yeah, there were assumptions about being non-binary that prevented me from coming out as non-binary because I was like, oh, well, I didn't know that that, that you could be non-binary and be and do this or be that. I thought like I would be shunned from the community if I said that I thought I was non-binary and then didn't want to change my appearance in any way. I definitely believed that for a while, that like you had to kind of look androgynous to be non-binary. You absolutely don't. Non-binary people can look anyway. If I dress up one day and I go full femme, I'm still non-binary. If I dress every day like that, I'm still non-binary. So that was like one of the biggest things, but I thankfully like quickly found like the non-binary community out here in, in Philly and like learned that's clearly not the case, that you have to use they, them pronouns. Um, that was one that I believed that I now like strongly vocalize is not the case because I mean, all of the things I loudly advocate about are things that like I used to believe in like six months or a year of when I was kind of like, am I, am I not? Um, it was kind of preventing me from doing so. And so once I unlearned those things, that was super important for me. So yeah, you can use any pronouns. You can use combinations of pronouns and your pronoun comfortability with certain pronouns may change over time. We touched on it briefly before, but I'd love to talk a little bit about, you know, experimenting with solo sex and pleasure on your own when you're going through that, especially someone who, if you are a trans or non-binary person who does experience body dysphoria, I'd love to talk a little bit about that, about sort of navigating solo sex and advice you have around that. Watching porn and using that in your solo sex can absolutely help because if you're watching something that is like not representative of you, it's probably going to either give you dysphoria or it's not really going to help. So I would say definitely looking into different subscription services or finding one that you really like and finding ones where you definitely see people who look like you or scenarios that are similar to like scenarios that you would see yourself having sex in because that can also be super important to like see the certain like scenarios that they're setting up or like the role play kind of scenes that they're setting up. And then I think those are also really important because a lot of the time they're very intentional about the way that they will film acts of consent and checking in and in very intentional sex. And I think it's really important to like see those things and to see like very respectful boundaried sex. I think that can help when you're watching porn and you're by yourself. 
it's going to help like your partnered sex, but anything that's going to help the way that you interact with your partnered sex is going to also translate to your solo sex. And then I also think that if you are experiencing dysphoria, and then if you're going through some sort of affirming treatment or surgery, it's really important to discuss that with your doctor. And if possible, if you are having a lot of trouble around the sexuality um, aspect of that with your hormones, if it's your hormones, if it's um, like bottom growth or anything like that, um, I think it's really important to, uh, if you can afford it, to work with like a sex coach or a sex therapist of the sort, because those can be really complicated and it can be really difficult. And I wouldn't want anyone to go through something like that without having like one-on-one support with somebody. And it's not really something that like you probably necessarily get from your regular doctor, especially depending on like where you're getting your affirming treatments and procedures from some places are better than others. I would also say experimenting with different toys, different types of touch as well. And knowing that you can participate in solo intimacy without touching your genitals, just like you can participate in like partnered intimacy without touching each other's genitals. So if you're having a lot of dysphoria around your genitals, or they're uncomfortable, like they're physically uncomfortable, or you like you physically can't touch them, but you still want to be intimate with yourself in some way, there's a lot of ways to do that can kind of set the mood for yourself, you can caress your body, you can invest in different types of kind of like toy accessories, um, like a Wartenberg wheel, which is like a little spiky wheel that is like incredibly erotic feeling just grazing it along your arm, or like a tickler, or experimenting, I think a really great thing to experiment with, which you can do solo a little bit, it's obviously easier with a partner, which is like BDSM kind of stuff. But BDSM and sex can overlap, but they don't necessarily have to. You can absolutely have a BDSM scene or something like that without any sort of penetration or any sort of um, sex. I think discussing your boundaries ahead of time is something that people don't like to do, but is incredibly important, but can also be done in a sexy way. It doesn't have to be awkward. Like it can absolutely just be like, kind of like sex talk. Like you're kind of getting to know what the person likes and you're kind of just like talking kinky. Um, And you can kind of do that like towards the end of the date when things get a little, you know, you're having your dessert and you're thinking about whether or not you're going to like go home together or something. You can start steering the conversation a little dirtier and naughtier. And then with that talk, you can kind of like find out what that person is into. I also think that's like sexting is super helpful. A lot of my really great uh, hookups or like ongoing kind of uh, hookups have been with people where it kind of started, we met off of Tinder or something. And then we were texting. And then before we even met, we kind of had a bit of a sexting session, which one was really great, because like, it kind of established a bit of our compatibility. And then I was able to learn a little bit about like what they liked. And then also checking in during the actual acts constantly checking in. But again, doesn't have to be awkward, doesn't have to be like, whoa, 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 stop are you okay? (laughs) That would be ridiculous. It can literally just be like, oh yeah, baby, do you like that? And then if the person is saying, yes, baby, I like that, that's your consent. It does not have to be not sexy at all. It quite literally is like pretty sexy. (laughs) So yeah, I think checking in. And then also I think aftercare is a hundred percent like so very important and always colors the way that I see the interaction after whether or not the person has good aftercare tendencies. Like if they just run off, 
obviously not great. Like I'm not asking people to like stay the night or anything. Like I specifically actually don't like people to stay the night. Like aftercare is going to look different for everyone. So I think it's important to try to discuss before if you can. Honestly, aftercare is can be as simple as like your kind of pillow talk after, whoo, wow. And then you just kind of like talk like, wow, that was really great. I really loved it when you blah, blah, blah. You can kind of go over things that you thought were really hot. And then that also helps that person know if you're gonna have sex in the future, that that's something that you really liked and that was a bingo for them. And that's gonna like one, make them feel good. And then two, they're gonna do it again. I thought what Jamie was saying about aftercare was really important to highlight because I don't think that I've heard about it outside of the context of BDSM scenes. I think I've only really heard of it in that context and it doesn't have to be a full-on athletic, crazy, kinky, new scene sex thing to require you to have a debrief with your partner and to check in with them and make sure that what happened was good and what did they like. And it doesn't have to be a survey either. It doesn't have to be really clinical where you sit down and go pick the boxes you liked or didn't like. You can do that if that works for you. But it could also be a really sexy, comfortable, simple, pleasurable conversation moment where you, you know, you just lie with each other really simply and say whatever comes up or, you know, sit in silence and be connected in that moment but do it intentionally that was the key thing it's like most people will probably do this anyway but let's be intentional about aftercare i thought that was so cool i loved what you just said you sounded like a sex therapist or something (laughs) (laughs) my other life you guys have no idea That was a real turning point in my understanding of sex and pleasure was when last season we spoke to Ruby and she, Ruby Rare, and she kind of spoke a little bit about this as well, how when you go for dinner the next day with all your friends and you do a version of aftercare then, like you're, you give all the deets. I don't know about you and like all our listeners and their friends, but like when Roz and I do it, it's like super detailed. <laughs> like there's no holds barred. It's very descriptive in like a cute, fun way. Like we're not shaming <laughs> the people that we're having sex with we sound like such bitches but it's like a thing that you do with your friends like you debrief and I think for me I never thought of it as something that I could do earlier with the person that I actually was doing the sex with instead of like saving all that information for like a gossiping sesh and I think that's so beautiful because it's a check-in and you've like been really vulnerable with them so it kind of takes some of the shame away as well like when you sit in that moment and you're just a bit honest about how it was and then you're you're on the same page like you don't need and it also really helps in terms of consent like I think if you're sleeping with someone new and it's kind of that new feeling of figuring out how you can work together to figure out consent like talking about it in the lead up to sex and then after is such a lovely process to be able to like ensure that you took care of each other you know I mean how what a moment of power to be able to verbalize something you like I don't know that I can necessarily verbalize all the things that I like in sex not really well see this is the thing right logically I can say all this and I'm like yes sounds so good 
in practice, it's scary. It's so scary to me. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like it can fit a lot of different ways of doing it. Like it doesn't have to be sit there and say three things you like and three things you didn't and, you know, <laughs> what on a scale of one to ten, how did I do? You know, it could just be like, you know, that was really hot. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Tell me more. Or like, if it's a casual relationship, maybe you could just go, call me when you're free. That was good. You know? And it can be simple things like that. And it just gives you an opening. Because if they're open to talk about it and they're open to that kind of sort of mood, you've started to create a way for you to feel really comfortable and casual about having this conversation. If it's intentional, you can start building on that and using it as a really great tool for yourself through sex. I just think it's a really interesting idea that maybe I need to explore more as well. Honestly, from the way that you're speaking about it, it makes me want to like, you know, take your advice and do it. So I feel like I need to do you proud and be intentional about that conversation after. It is such a beautiful idea when you think about it in terms of like non-hetero sex as well. Like there's so much to learn as well about sleeping with different types of people on the gender spectrum. And on their own journey, right? Like you don't know where they're at in their journey. You could have just slept with someone who seems super comfy with their body, but might not be super comfy with their sexuality or, you know, you never know what it could bring up. And so having a moment where you're opening this space for you to say something could potentially be the moment that they get to say something as well that will make your sex better and give you a little bit of an indication about Something that maybe you need to be sensitive to. I mean, it's also that thing of like trauma lives in the body, right? Like you don't know how your body's going to react to something or like something that you thought would feel good might feel really bad and scary. And if you just bottle it up and push it down, which I have certainly done before, like it becomes a bigger and a bigger problem. And yeah, you start to feel really ashamed of it. Yeah, no, I absolutely agree. And it's interesting because I look back at experiences I've had that because this is outside of consent before and during, you know, this is outside of that conversation. And I've had experiences where the consent was really clear, verbalized throughout the whole thing. You know, all of that was so good. And then I don't think I put the time into being intentional about aftercare because I was out the door. And I think maybe in hindsight, that was bad of me. Because I I don't think I gave those other people, like, the chance to, <laughs> to debrief with me, even. Um, yeah, I'm thinking about it now. I'm like, I wish I had. I wish I had taken that moment to be as intentional about consent and take it in this way. Because I have my rants about consent, how you can check in, you can make it sexy, how it's fine, you know, how you should. Why don't I take it a step further? But, I mean, never make yourself feel bad for not being in the headspace to do it. I don't feel bad. I'm excited. <laughs> okay, good. Because I think it takes time to realise these things about sex. And for a lot of people, when you start having sex, you're so bloody confused about all of it. You're having to unlearn so much shit and you're like, it's just so confusing. It's a lot of the times it's really tied up to your self-esteem. <laughs> That's how it was with me. <laughs> this is the thing. It's like we don't talk about it outside of a biological way very often in sex ed. We've talked about that a lot on this podcast. And then we go into these situations expecting to 
be open to making sure everything's consensual and being really ready and open to any kind of experience and to be good at it. What? (laughs) In what other situation would that be true (laughs) in life (laughs) where you don't talk about it, you don't really know much about it other than a very mechanical thing, and then you're expected to be brilliant at it straight away because it's instinctual? Only in the last couple of years have I started actually taking the the shame away from some of those first sexual encounters that I had where I felt like so open to like what someone else could do to me instead of what I actually wanted. So after Kara's Key, maybe it wouldn't have changed all of those moments. And as a youngin, I would never in a million years have ever felt confident enough to be like, hey, could we just chat about that experience? Like, I never would have done that. (laughs) Yeah, but you've probably did something. Like, there are probably instances where you have. All my lovers need to get ready for a really long debrief after. (laughs) (laughs) no. (laughs) She's taken it too far. (laughs) She's off the rails. She's out of control. She's written a spreadsheet. (laughs) Yeah, I've written a Google Doc survey. It's a a Google Google form form that populates a spreadsheet. (laughs) Which then will go into another spreadsheet that gives a score to each It gives a score and then I write a poem about it that I share with the person. That you then do in a physical theatre space in public. Exactly. So, yep, that's going to be great. (laughs) Great. Well, I'm excited for that performance. What advice do you have for people who are going through their own kind of journey discovering their gender identity? Social media, honestly. Um, Finding social media communities, following incredible trans and non-binary advocates and influencers. I would just say, throw it out there, that scarletine.org is phenomenal, especially for younger people who are um, exploring their identity. It's also really great sex education for younger people too. We'll get into that, but that's just kind of like a site that's great for all of it. And then, yeah, there's also like incredible books. There's transgender history. There is, so you think you might be trans. If you're a person who's exploring their non-binary identity and they want to use they, them pronouns, and they would really like to help the people around them uh, get better at it because people around them may not be super great at it. That will absolutely happen. And it sucks. It still happens for me. My mom and my friends continue to occasionally misgender me. Um, It's tiring, but know that your pronouns matter and not to let them off the hook. (laughs) Um, Just because they're like your friends or family. Like if it's important to you, it should be important to them. I read quite a few of your articles and one of them kind of mentioned that idea of cis fragility where people, they hear they, them pronouns and they go, but this is a story about me finding it difficult to say it. Whereas it's not about them. I think I was probably talking about like when someone does like misgender somebody, usually what will happen most of the time is the person feels very embarrassed. And I understand. And most of the time when we are embarrassed about something, like anything, we will like try to profusely apologize and we kind of tend to overdo it. And that is normally like not a big deal if you're apologizing for something like, I don't know, just not as important, but for non-binary people, for trans people, when that happens, it's just more time that we're taking to like 
shine a light on the fact that like you can't get this thing down it's more time that we're talking about like something that makes me a little like uncomfortable because it's something that you're having trouble with so then it like just makes me think more about like my gender or my gender dysphoria if that's a thing it's just the best thing for somebody to do is to correct themselves and then move right on for example you're saying oh yeah my friend Jamie she oh I mean they went to blah 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 that that I love just move on, just correct yourself in the moment immediately. But if someone like corrects you, I think it's great to say thank you because I don't really like, sorry, I don't want you to apologize. I want you to just take what I'm saying, thank me for correcting you and then just try harder next time. And because it, it also often derails the conversation, like, and then the person doesn't even remember what they were talking about in the beginning. And then I just end up sitting there like embarrassed because of my gender. And that doesn't feel good at all. Yeah, it makes an awkward moment about something that should be celebratory rather than here's a moment of silence. <laughs> I feel like there's so much more we can talk about. <laughs> I could talk all day about this. Yeah, absolutely. But I just had one more question, which was, what does a world look like where we don't assume genders for people? Oh my God, it looks beautiful to me, honestly. <laughs> it would look to me like Philly in my little pocket of Philly, but like the whole world, which is just like so many different presentations of people and bright hair colors and piercings and tattoos and, and people not judging people for the way that they look and the way that they adorn themselves and the way that they want to express themselves and the fashion that they dress in. And I think that is the future <laughs> of gender. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Bad Behaviour. I really hope you enjoyed it. There were some amazing points made by Jamie throughout this. I'll make sure that we put in some amazing resources on our show notes on our website, which is badbehaviourpodcast.com. Also, a reminder that Jamie made a great point when it came to pronouns. Putting pronouns on various documentations and wherever you can is a great way to show allyship to non-binary or trans people because it's implicitly saying that there are many and that you should be conscious of them. So, Nicola, what are your pronouns? Mine are she and her, and this has been a really good reminder to us. We're going to add pronouns to the bios on our website because we did not do that. And what are yours, Rosalind? I've decided to embrace the she, they. Yay. Okay. Well, thank you all for joining us. We'll see you next time. Bye. The executive producer for this episode was Rosalind Ankatel. Bad Behaviour is produced by Rosalind Ankatel, Nicola Cranage, and Amcheja Magembe. Hosted by Rosalind Ankatel and Nicola Cranage. Editing and sound designed by Namcheja Magembe. Our logo was designed by Bonnie Eichelberger. We all misbehave sometimes. Wanna change the world, indulge in some bad.